a possible IPO from Saudi Aramco. All that and more on this Energy and Materials edition of Industry Focus. Good morning, foolish listeners. I am Sean O'Reilly, joining you here from Fool Headquarters in Alexandria, Virginia. It is Friday, April 22nd, 2016, and joining me to talk about the latest in the world of energy and materials is the one and only Tyler Crow. Uh, long time no see, Tyler. Yeah, it's been a week. You know, we had we had a little fill-in for you. We had a lawn ornament take your spot. I about died when I saw that. Yeah, it was pretty good. It was fun. It he, was pretty... It, he was very insightful. I, I'm sure. Probably more insightful than, than yours truly. <laughs> Um, but uh, you guys had a good show. I enjoyed it. I listened to it from uh, northeastern Ohio. I visited with visited the parents. Have a good um, time. Yeah, no, we actually um, completely unrelated to uh, you know our topics of discussion today. But um, I'm going to plug my hometown for a second. Lots of exciting things are happening in downtown Cleveland. Like they're building apartment buildings, and they put in like a fancy Heinen's inside of an old bank building, and it's just weird to see because I don't think of Cleveland as an urban living city, and. Must, must Long be, way to go. It must be all the good news around all their sports teams that just really hey, has hey, everybody hey, hey, hey. excited. It's okay, Tyler. It's okay. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> um, I grew up in the, the 1990s when the tribe was hot. And Anyway, cool. Uh, so, diving in real quick here, we're starting to get a trickle of earnings releases from a few of the people in our sector. Yeah. Um, you know, early reporters, every single co- every single time this year, you get a couple of the early oil services companies, like the big, in- I would call them the diversified oil services companies, and you also get uh, early indications from Kinder Morgan. Um, I think a lot of what's been going on as of late is pretty much what everyone would have expected. Right. Um, you know, if you wa- if you look at things like oil prices, you look at things like rig counts in the United States. Which, ironically enough, I couldn't help but notice in the um, Core Labs release that was like in the first paragraph was the rig count. I'm like, yeah, you guys want everybody to know. Well, <laughs> I mean, Schlumberger mentions it too. It's not. It's it is very very hard to make money when you are a drilling contractor or do some sort of oil services business when the rig count in the United States is the lowest it's ever been that since we the ha- 1950s. since we have re- yeah. since we have records of it it's around 400 right now which is just mind-bogglingly low and you know if you looking at some of the results it's pretty reflective of that even uh, CEO Paul Kipsgard at uh, Schlumberger, you know, notice he's like, this is one of the worst cash crunches that I have seen in the oil patch in my career, and you know, if you look at the revenue and earnings breakdown of the company, they break it out between North America and international, and if you look at international, it's a down by you know twenty percent, and they're still generating about generating operating income or of about 20 uh, 13 or oh, no sorry 20% actually I have which we were right here. we were told that international would be a lot better than north america yeah. um on our trip to houston last yep. october by um distribution now yep. they're like yeah and it's it's because the these are national oil companies mm-hmm. longer tail projects but so pre-tax international pre-tax operating margins at Schlumberger still the 20% which is great it's I positive mean, that's a good thing you know, <laughs> revenue is down year over year of about 28% on the international side which doesn't sound too too bad but then you look at north america America. Revenue down 55%, and 
pre-tax operating margins have actually swung into a loss of negative 0.7%. And I think in the next couple of days, when you have Halliburton, Baker Hughes, a couple of the other oil services companies that are much more tied to the North American market, I think you're going to see even worse some some struggles. Right. So I think investors who you know have a stake in some of these other companies. Just be ready because right. it's probably not going to be pretty. Um, um, when I was reading the Core Labs and the uh, uh, just Core Labs, I was most interested to see them, but uh, it was pretty meat and potatoes, and it's what you would expect. Um, what did you think about Caterpillar's results? Because they are extraordinary, obviously very very tied to the mining industry, right? And um, the results weren't that bad though. They had quarterly revenues of six hundred forty-three million dollars. It was down seven percent um, compared to the same period last year. I mean, that isn't complete devastation. They're still profitable. Yeah, they're still profitable. There, it's just that if you look at the numbers for everything Caterpillar, it's we're all. I want to. I don't want to say hanging on by the skin of their teeth. That right. that might be a little bit too too far of it. But you know, if you look at anything when it comes to mining or energy and materials, or uh, for them, it's it's just getting absolutely hammered. There are a couple. I guess you could call them saviors for them. They have their financing arm, which has seen some only modest declines because you've got people still paying off equipment. And one of the things that was meant, you know, mentioned in their release about their seat uh, from their CEO was that we think we're pretty close to the bottom here. I mean, it would not be surprising if things were to decline a little bit more, but we're not going to see. We don't think. We're going to see much larger declines from where we are right now, and we feel like we have made the adjustments to our cost structure that we can handle being today. And if you look at the final final results, they still re- remained modestly profitable, and cash is coming in the door—not a lot, but mm-hmm. enough that you don't have to hit the panic button yet. And we're looking at a company like Caterpillar. Um, their pricing stayed relatively well because they have branding power. They have a you know a certain level of trust when somebody is going to buy a six seven figure loader, piece yeah. of equipment. Yeah, you want quality. You want something you can depend on. You want a company that's going to be around to fix it. And so, you know, so with something like that, it, Caterpillar certainly has those advantages, and it, it's looking much much better than it has uh, in the past six so, to twelve months. Given the um Indications that we might be at the bottom of this cycle. Is this when you kind of step up and start picking up a few shares in some of these names? Um, I, Caterpillar has certainly been on my radar for a little while. I've been kind of watching, trying to figure out how they're going to handle their debt situation. They do have a pretty low, large amount of debt, but they are a manufacturing company. So you know, when you compare it to some other people, you know, when you, if you were to compare Caterpillar and Starbucks or something like that, you'd be bewildered at the amount of debt that right. Caterpillar had. But then if you different start, business models. Right. Different if you start looking yeah. at the heavy capital costs that are involved in building all this machinery and having large inventories that are going to last a very long time, you're not you're not turning over a front-end loader in 12 days or something right. like that. It may take a couple 
a much longer for it to sell, so you have pretty high inventories. So there, they just has a higher debt capital structure, and but just watching it and making sure that it's not having to blow out the bank during this downturn, which makes it look a little bit more promising than say twelve months ago when things were still rapidly, rapidly declining, and kind of watching it be like, whoa, how is this going to? Are they going to have to make some drastic measures? And they've made some labor cuts, and they've certainly brought their operating costs down, but you know, not enough. They they haven't had to do the big deep cuts that would you would assume somebody would have to do in a situation like this. Yeah. Um, so obviously, talking about oil for the last eighteen months has been I don't want to call it depressing, but I don't have a better word. Mining's not doing so hot. Are there any companies in the energy industrial space that might uh, make one hopeful of the future? I think actually one that looks pretty interesting uh, from a. Not from an oil and gas, but from a overall energy perspective. If you kind of look at the whole space, I really have been kind of impressed with what's been going on at General Electric. Um, if you obviously, oil and gas has been that segment of the business has been getting hammered, Nuked. just like everybody else. <laughs> I mean, no shock there. But they're doing some very interesting things in the oil and gas segment, and they're also getting some better results from across the board. If you look at their renewable segment, which is something they just started breaking out in their earnings, you have a renewable segment that brought in $1.6 billion in quarterly revenue, which is 66% greater than what we saw in the previous uh, That's, previous year. Yeah, Part of that had to do with the Alstom, Alstom acquisition that they made uh, back last year, uh, basically buying it. Winter, it's all of its wind turbine and mm-hmm. other uh, power generating. They were already a big player in wind turbines even right. before that. So. And so you add Alstom to that, and you've got a huge uh, wind. And you know they have some solar, but I and again some interesting things they're doing in oil and gas. They even mentioned it in their release where they have done a kind of a new model when it comes to oil and gas equipment manufacturing with. Uh, rig company Diamond Offshore. Uh, basically, GE per- has provided all of the blowout preventers. It's a major piece of equipment that is one of the, I would say, the bottlenecks of the oil and gas drilling industry. Like mm-hmm. you, this thing has to run perfectly. It has to go on scheduled maintenance, and there's a lot of downtime associated with it. When anytime there's downtime, you're not making any money. And so what they have done is they have bought back all of their oil and gas. Uh, or the blowout preventers from Diamond Offshore that had originally purchased, and now are leasing them to them. And the goal of this uh, for Diamond Offshore is GE has some skin in the game. They want to be better about maintenance and keeping it operating, and they get incentive bonuses based on getting uh, better performance metrics than they already have. And in exchange, GE gets a reoccurring revenue rather than a straight sale. So, over yeah. the long term, that asset becomes more valuable. And if it can pull levers like that in the oil and gas industry, while at the same time seeing this huge boom in other sections such as uh, renewables, it, GE is looking very impressive, at least on the energy at, side of its business. Yeah, and given the their uh, 
their shift that they're in the midst of making towards getting back to their roots of being a good old American manufacturer, it seems, I don't think I'd be going out on a limb to say that they're a decent bet if you want to get in on the alternative energy, high value manufacturing game. They are doing a lot of things that are very impressive. You know, they're they're really trying to divest themselves from GE Capital. They said in their release they're about $166 billion worth of uh, of that has been divested. They're a little ahead of schedule on that. And when they get rid of all of these GE capital that are kind of ancillary to the, you know, this typical financing arm that you'd see at a Caterpillar or a G, uh, John Deere or something like that to help fund the purchase of a major piece of equipment, once they get rid of that, they're going to be able to get rid of their sci-fi desig- uh, CFI, sci-fi, whatever you want to call it, designation. Basically, saying they're too big to fail right. as a financial institution. We don't matter to the financial industry anymore. <laughs> right. They want to get rid of that, and in doing so, they free up a lot of their uh, capital and cash and things like that that they can then return to shareholders. Uh, they're looking at doing a massive buyback, a, a sizable dividend increase, and when they once that capital aspect of it and they get back to being a true industrial manufacturer and if you look at those numbers they're becoming a pretty good industrial manufacturer pretty, again. yeah things look do, do look very promising for GE I, like caterpillar GE is another thing that's I, I have been watching pretty uh, attentively as of late um, and real quick before we move on um, I was interested to get your thoughts on the airlines um, these guys have I mean you think of an automatic beneficiary of low oil prices Oh, and they have been immediately. Oh, they have been. Yeah, except for uh, who was it that had like really high-priced hedges that hasn't really benefited? Uh, you know, anyway, no big deal. Anyway, um, but uh, you you mentioned before we went on air that you'd been looking through their their results, and I think Alaska Air and Southwest have reported right. some good and some bad. I would say, I wouldn't say it call it bad. It would more just be like. Flatlining, very, very neutral. So some of the good things that you see, you know, obviously the headline number says they made some of their best return on invested capital numbers. They made some of their best profit numbers in a quarter, which all sound great. And then when you start to break down what those are, some of the, you know, some of the gains that they had, you know, you saw a modest uptick in total uh, miles flown. Basically, they're scheduling more flights. They're Building out a little bit more, a uh, few new routes, things like that. But they're very measured when it comes to those things. Their load factor, uh, and this is actually an important metric when you're thinking about the airline industry. Load factor is basically how full the planes are at any given time. And you know, you saw a modest uptick in that. You know, they're, I believe, somewhere in the 80.4, 80.5, 80. which was right around where they were. A couple, like I said, not even a, a full percentage point increase there. But yeah. improving. But the one thing that is interesting for both Alaska and uh, Southwest was another important metric, which is uh, PRASM or passenger revenue per available seat mile. This is one of the most important metrics when you're looking at airlines because it's basically saying. So listeners should be writing this down. <laughs> right. And that's, that's the one you really want to look at is how much revenue they're generating per seat on the plane. Per mile that's actually flown, because that includes things like fuel costs, and you know how how full the plane is actually is. So it's a very important metric to kind of keep track of. And if you look at these companies, Alaska's was down a little bit, Southwest very very modestly up, but again pretty flat line numbers when we're looking at increases on things like this. So, and it's kind of telling when you look at the big gains in terms of revenue or income that they got. Or sorry, income, not revenue, and then look at the Prasm numbers where they're 
pretty modestly flat, you can pretty much kind of assume that a lot of these gains are coming from sm- modest expansion in the company and a major benefit from oil and gas prices. Is it a lot of people talk, you know, all these articles I read and edit and occasionally contribute to about the talk about the automakers, GM and Ford or whatever, and they're, I mean, they're selling just about as many cars as they ever have or arguably ever will. Is it the same case with both autos and airlines right now that this is probably as good as it's ever going to get? I mean, unless population explodes, I think it, or it really like that. Dep- it really depends on where you're looking. Like, certainly in the United States. There is some room to grow with regional travel. It's still a growing industry, um, but is it's an ungodly competitive industry. Like we said, right. when you have flatlining numbers on passenger revenue, I haven't been able to. I, I can't believe the profits that these companies have been making these last few years. And you had David Tepper making a couple billion dollars off of buying them after the Great Recession. Right. Like I grew up, you know, reading about Warren Buffett as a teenager. And rule number one: stay the heck away from airlines. Well, you also have to take into effect. In in account when you look at somebody like Warren Buffett, he's looking at it over longer across the cycle, and it looks like we're on one of the up cycles in the airlines where fuel tro- fuel is cheap, everybody wants to fly, economic conditions are good. So there, you know, those are when the opportunities are. the The big question will be is can they carry some of that momentum into when oil prices start to increase, and that's going to be the biggest question for them going forward. You know, how long is this party going to last with oil prices, and and at the same time, when you look at those flatlining numbers for passenger revenue per available seat mile, it starts to wonder how much how much more competitive are these people going to get when it comes to fares and fees? Because let's face it, airline travel is has become a race to the bottom when it comes yeah. to prices nowadays. That's why a company like Spirit Airlines, as miserable of an experience as it is to fly on a Spirit Airlines plane, like I don't know if you've flown them. It wasn't exactly the best experience I've ever right. had. Well, even with and, Southwest. But it is cheap. Oh my goodness, is it cheap. My um, my flight to uh, Columbus, Port Columbus Airport in Ohio last week, I booked a month, month and a half in advance. Um, my flight was $69 one way. Yeah, on Southwest, I got peanuts and a Coke. It was great. <laughs> so, but again, it's it's the race to the bottom. It is a race it's to so the bottom. Cheap. They, they that, did not make money on me. Like, you have come the on. dynamic pricing model where, yeah, you bought it a month out, and it's going to be a little cheaper than if you'd waited. But a now week. it's two hundred bucks. Yeah. But you know, so you have those sort of dynamics going on, and it it'll be interesting to see what happens with fares, and it you know we're starting to see a little industry consolidation with Alaska buying Virgin Atlantic and things like that. If if industry consolidation does happen a little bit more, will they be able to raise prices a little bit because the amount of competition won't be as robust. Right. All right. Well, before we dive into talking about Saudi Aramco's probable IPO, I wanted to point any listeners out there that are hungry for more foolish content to focus uh, to focus.fool.com, where all industry-focused listeners have access to a special discount on the Motley Fool Stock Advisor newsletter. The discount works out to $129 for a full two-year subscription. Once again, that is focus.fool.com. So, Tyler Crow. Yes. Saudi Arabia really, really, really wants to raise a couple trillion dollars, it looks like. Um, or at least, I don't know, a couple hundred billion from selling a 5% stake in what is the country's arguably only industry. Um, <laughs> why didn't they do this a couple years ago? <laughs> well, uh, when you're. There's a couple things going on here, and I, I, I'm not going to delve deep into Saudi Arabian politics because I don't. 
Nobody knows. I don't know that very well, but as you've seen, there's been some pretty vo- some rather vocal commentary coming out from the kingdom. Some of the I guess, not the king, but like some of his various princes are saying right, this. Are you know trying to get away from oil? We need to move away. Like, you know, they're trying to build this massive, basically sovereign wealth fund where they can start to wean themselves off of oil. And one of the ways that they want to raise money to get this fund off the off the the ground is to IPO a certain segment of Saudi Aramco. Now, let's be, it's pretty modest here. They only want to sell about 5% of the business. And the, granted, that 5% is a lot because it's such a big company. But uh, from an investing standpoint, you know, it's going to be listed on the New York Stock Exchange. So you and I can, can buy it just like anybody else. But before anybody gets too excited about this, and there, I'm sure there's going to be a ton of media like, should you buy Saudi Aramco and it IPOs and all these things. Right now, we don't even know what the heck we're going to get. Like they said, oh, we're going to five percent. Does that mean five percent of the whole thing? Five percent is just these certain segments of assets. We don't have the slightest clue what that necessarily means. That was the most interesting part about. Uh, I think it was the Wall Street Journal article that uh, I read the other day, and this was titled, um, "You know, Saudi Aramco IPO could be five percent of value." Um, and as you said, value of what? The most interesting thing that I read was. They're not even sure if they're going to include the country's oil reserves. Uh, I mean, as I understand it, the country is structured to where everything's the property of the Saudi royal family. So I, it seems to me like they could do whatever they want with all this stuff anyway. So I'm almost inclined to say, give me the refining assets and you keep the oil. I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's one of those things, again, too, where you're looking at a business that is trying to serve two masters. And what we have seen, at least in the oil industry over the past several years, a company that's trying to serve two masters like that in the terms of being a hybrid of a state-run oil company and being one that's publicly traded where it's beholden to returns, those can be conflicting things. And I think a great example of that is Petrobras in Brazil. You know, Never mind all of the things that have gone on with the kickback scandals and the corruption and the things that have happened as of late, but if you had watched Petrobras at the early times, it was, we have this immense opportunity because we have these pre-sol fields, they're huge, we need to raise some capital. And they wanted this hybrid model where they could raise the capital and, and use generate returns for investors over time. The only problem is, is that there were so many restrictions from the state-run side where it's like, well, you still need to subsidize gasoline prices within the country, so you're going to automatically take a loss on those. You, you know, you have to have certain local content restrictions so you can't be the most competitive on price all the times when in comparison to an oil major. And when you have those conflicting Do you interests, contract out to just Brazilian companies right. when, I mean, it's all... So, when you have those conflicting interests, it can be very, very difficult to balance that. And if you look across, you know, Petrobras, PetroChina, uh, even Sinopec to a certain degree, it's it's very hard for a company to serve both of those masters well and to have everybody satisfied. And so, yeah, sure, Saudi Aramco might make five percent of available. Is it going to be a great investment? It's it's really hard to tell right now. The odds and, are low. Yeah. I, don't go jumping in the minute you see it. Right. What do you think? Um so I, I, you know, you see this valuation of two point five trillion dollars for Saudi Aramco. Maybe that includes the reserves or not. 
Five um, percent of that, of course, would raise the company 125, uh, the country 125 billion dollars. Um, the whole number itself seems suspect to me because oil prices are at the low 40s right now, and that's after rallying over 50 percent from 26, 27. Um, does that imply that the Saudi Aramco was worth five trillion 18 months ago? Like, I don't quite buy that. Like, where are they getting this 2.5 trillion dollar number? Because I seem to remember that from a year or two. I'm like, well, and you also have to take into account, too, that, right, the numbers that are given on these aren't necessarily beholden to SEC regulations on how you evaluate reserves, how do you evaluate your property, and right. things like that. And perhaps once. You know, they do go public on the New York Stock Exchange. They will have to disclose things like that, like right. you know what Reserves they're and stuff. And maybe once that happens, we'll get a little clearer picture and some transparency into a business that has been very opaque for a long, long time. Um, yeah. So, uh, so before we head out, Tyler, I want to get your thoughts real quick. Um, can you tell our audience really quickly why, if your stock falls fifty percent, a CEO shouldn't get a twenty percent raise? Well, at least that's what. Uh, <laughs> A couple companies have said um, recently with some shareholder votes, both Anglo American, a major diversified right, mine yeah. company, and BP, both uh, in their shareholder votes, both companies had a either large plurality or a majority of their shareholders saying no to. Uh, the pay packages that were proposed by the board for these com- for these company CEOs, in the case of Bob Dudley, who's a CEO of B- uh, BP, he was looking at a twenty percent raise to a- to about nineteen point six million dollars annually, and which is absurd. It, it it all comes down to how you evaluate what your you know how you structure your compensation packages. And if you look at some of the ways that BP had structured it, it was rather favorable to the business on these these certain return certain metrics that looked favorable almost regardless of the current price environment or the total return that a shareholder would get. you know, contrast that with some like ExxonMobil or Chevron CEOs both of them saw pretty decent-sized declines in their salary from 2014 to 2015 because their compensation packages were based somewhat on total return. And when you have your stock drop 20%, 30% in a year, you're gonna some of that is going to be reflected in your pay package. So this is one of those things, and I think as a shareholder, it's kind of one of the nice things where you can actually say no something like this and actually have a voice in it. And that's one of the great things about being a, a shareholder, an individual shareholder of a company is you, as little as it may be, some, you still have a voice in what goes on in the company. You know, you can say, hey, you guys are paying your CEO too much. Or you can even sometimes even bring up amendments uh, for like oil companies. You see a lot of them, they have to bring forth um, Votes on things like climate change disclosure, so it's encouraging to see shareholders actually holding companies' feet to the fire for a change because it's right. Sometimes these guys can 
get away with a few things every once in a while. And to, to see this happening is a little encouraging. Good. Well, thank you once again for your thoughts, Tyler. Always a pleasure. Thanks. And if you're a loyal listener and have questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Just email us at industryfocus at fool.com. Once again, that is industryfocus at fool.com. And as always, people in this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against those stocks. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear on this program. For Tyler Crow, I'm Sean O'Reilly. Thanks for listening and fool on.